Yes, friends, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. I'm Kent Dobson, and this is part two of a series that I'm starting, which I'm calling We've Lost the Plot. The subtitle is uh, something like Recovering the Great Stories, and I mean the biblical stories. There are other great stories, but the biblical stories are the ones that are coming up for me, and that, if I'm honest, I'm surprised by. I've spent almost 20 years in a process of deconstruction and crit- and critique and teaching and reteaching and rethinking the passages of the Bible, the stories. And and meanwhile, my own sort of faith was unraveling and and falling apart and um not to mention I was reaching the age where the concerns of the first half of my life had sort of run their course. I made some podcasts on this and the very beginnings of the second half have started emerging and I've been following the thread of what's down there. What is the soul? Um, am I missing something? And, and also what is meant by spirit? These two kind of poles it's just one way of thinking about soul and spirit what is my connection with the divine do I have one Um, oneness union God and sort of the I don't know the cauldron of those questions I guess maybe I just assumed the Bible would grow more and more boring and not really have much to say and sort of fade from memory um but the opposite is what is happening. The stories I'm realizing, just like in graduate school, I started to realize, whoa, I don't know what I'm talking about, and there's way more going on than I ever imagined. I'm starting to realize on the level of the psyche and archetype and symbol, and there's way more going on than I ever imagined. And the kind of the psycho-spiritual descent to soul the Bible mirrors back in its characters and tensions and and stories and the ascent to God, union, divine. Um, Or maybe you want to merge those and not even think about them as something different. Um, That's what the Bible mirrors back. It gives us clues and hints that are symbolic and metaphoric and and archetypal. And I pointed out in my last podcast, if if you missed it, that there are three threads or three streams that that have come to help me when when I think about the Bible. The first is story. That's one thread. What's the story? What's the story? Always be asking. Even the, even the a poem because there's lots of poetry in the Bible. What's the story here? What are the characters and images? Then there's the question of context, which I've I committed to seriously um, investigating and and still have some interest in. What's the context? Language. Uh, has its limits because I think part of the human arrogance is that I'm going to get the context right. Therefore, theologically, I'm going to know everything there is to know about God or I'm going to know what God, so to speak, has to say about any given issue. That's the sort of temptation of as long as I get the context right and the Greek word right, I'm really going to nail it. That's just the temptation of it. But context is maybe just provides color to to the story and maybe some colors you didn't know were there and nuance and depth and then there's the level that i'm primarily interested in now which is symbol 
metaphor, motif, um, archetype, the patterns of truth, um, the psychological, the the um, uh, symbolic structure of the stories themselves, and what are they telling us about what it means to be a human being? What are they telling us about what it means to be a human being in a complex culture, in a culture where people are prone to sometimes act very poorly, badly, and even in evil ways, and sometimes where people act in positive, life-giving, uh, life-affirming ways. Um, and also, what is our relationship with the world, with nature? After all, nature is not like our best friend. Um, it's beautiful, and it's like a nest at times, and at other times it wants to kill you. And you can't control the weather, which is actually what I want to talk about today, believe it or not. So kind of put that aside. What's today's podcast about? The polar vortex, uh, a Trump tweet, and Genesis chapter 1. And maybe a little bit of 2, if I have time. I asked you all if this like interests you in some way to send me a tweet with a question um, or a biblical passage. And I got a lot of tweets actually, um, considering that I'm barely ever go on Twitter. And <clears throat> I got a couple emails as well. Some people email me through my website questions they had, and I'll be mulling on them. I'll be taking them seriously. I got some really good ones, some good questions like, Hey, isn't it time for a new mythic narrative? Why are we looking backwards? Great question. Um, is, evolution a kind of new mythic narrative also really awesome question and here's another good one can the bible be saved um since it's been abused so much by fundamentalists and politicians and even scholars um theologians uh can it be saved is that really what i'm trying to do i, I almost want to answer that right now um i don't think i'm trying to do that um because i don't think the Bible needs me, especially, to save it. If it has power on the transformative level, in other words, if the symbols and archetypes and patterns, the perennial truths, are really there, deep, then the Bible will survive anything. It doesn't matter what you throw at it, even if it's paper thin. Um, seems like it will survive. Um, it seems to be operating in a, in a, in a stream that's ancient. That is, in, in my view, isn't going anywhere. And also people threw out lots and lots of stories that are worth looking at, including some that I call the texts of terror. Some of the most terrifying passages are like, <clears throat> what are you going to do with this on the level of symbol? Let me think about it. Some of them are really dark and not stuff, you know, people are like, we should get back to the Bible. And then I think, yeah, really? Have you read some of the stories in there? You want to teach these to kids? So let me, let me ponder some of these. Keep them coming. Keep the tweets and questions um, Emails coming. You can use the hashtag. Someone use the hashtag lost the plot, which I, I find very funny. So, all right, to the task at hand. We just emerged from the polar vortex. Thank God we were talking about something other than um, Washington for about five days. <clears throat> the polar vortex. And, um, and in Michigan, it was pretty cold. Not as cold as... Uh, Fargo, North Dakota, where my roommate from college lives, but it was cold. And the president, as he's prone to do, sent out a tweet. And the tweet was something like, we could use a little bit of that global warming right now. 
which um, is a bit sad and petty, you could say. But Trump has become, at least for me, one of my favorite people to pick on. And and not because, um, well, for Robbie, I mean, he's the same with all, you know, writers, right and left. He's like a magnet. And I think I like to to pick on him because he mirrors back to the United States right now, our own tendency, our own narcissistic tendencies, our own very limited views of success. He challenges our own values, really, um, whether you're sort of for or against him. <clears throat> he's, a, he's a provocative figure in that sense. He, he causes me to question, wait, what, do I, what is this place and how did it come to be, meaning America and, and what are my values and do I really even understand this country? And um, so, so in that sense, as a mirror, great. We could use some major mirroring. And um, this tweet in particular is, is quite, um, in a funny way, obviously narcissistic. I'm cold right now, therefore there's no global warming. It's like the, uh, um, like the flat earth person that says, well, last time I looked out at the ocean horizon, it looked flat to me, therefore the earth is flat, which is a strange kind of... Um, narcissistic tendency that we all have. I think it's kind of just an early, early level, if you will, of consciousness. My own way of viewing things is the only way of viewing things. Hopefully we grow up out of that, but we're all prone to be drawn back to that. It's, it's funny. I have a, I have a friend who's a philosophy press professor at uh, ASU. And um, I remember one time we were eating lunch and he said, do you have any false beliefs? And, <laughs> You know, honestly, part of me wanted to say, no, I don't have any false beliefs, which is ridiculous. Of course, I have false beliefs. I don't know what they are right now. I hope to someday um, uncover at least a few of them. In fact, I'm, pro- I'm going to die. I'm going to lay down on my deathbed and I'm still going to have some false beliefs. That is humbling. And I actually think we need we need a little bit, bit of that in our in our political, politically charged um, right versus left versus whatever um, conversation right now. We all have false beliefs. So um, let's settle down a little bit and, I don't know, in, engage in, uh, in a more compassionate and I think more deeply intellectual conversation about, well, what do we think they are and how might I be wrong? Anyway, what's my point? My point is that this tweet about uh, global warming reminded me of something that the poet Gary Snyder talks about. Um, Gary Snyder is one of my favorite uh, nature poets. Um, and he and this is from a book called A uh, Place in Space. This is what he says. Whatever sense of ethical responsibility and concern that human beings can muster must be translated from a human-centered consciousness to a nature systems-wide sense of value. So what I hear in that is the invitation of the 21st century is to grow up a bit out of such a human-centered level of consciousness, a caricature of which would be, hey, I'm cold right now, there's no global warming. I see a flat horizon, the earth is flat. Human-centered. And then out of that, uh, a worldview that says something like uh, the natural world is just 
um, an object and just a series of resources that I can use um, for my own pleasure or for my own whatever, personal gain or the gain of my culture and community. Two, what he's saying is a systems-wide sense of value, that the value isn't so human-centered, that my value system grows up to include the whole as much as possible. So a simple way of putting it is the the well-being of the soil is related to my well-being. How I treat um, the water and the air and the other living beings and creatures is also, in a systems-wide sense of value, how I'm treating myself. They're in relational dynamic, which is, by the way, a, a very old and ancient intuition of of um, the great myths, stories, and traditions that we are in a interconnected and interrelated web, which turns out to be a scientific fact. So, I mean, that's, by the way, n- not such an easy thing. You don't just like all of a sudden be like, well, now I have a a broader sense of value and I'm tomorrow I'll wake up and be less narcissistic. He goes on, he says, such an extension of human intellect, which is curious phrase here. You have to engage intellectually, even in the process or processes of shifting consciousness or conscious consciousness evolving, if you will. Such an extension of human intellect and sympathy into the non-human realms is a charming and mind-bending undertaking. It's also an essential step if we are to have a future worth living. And then he kind of adds, it's my own sort of crankiness to believe there is still hope. And on my best days, I too think there's still hope for this um, growing up that he's describing. Now, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, Genesis 1 which someone suggested I I talk a bit about, is a story about the human relationship with the natural world. Where do we come from? How do we get here? That's really even too... um, I'm not even sure how directly the Bible cares about that, at least not in a historical sense, but what is my place? How am I related to everything else here? That's the primary concern of Genesis. And... If you listen to my last podcast, what I'm saying in part is that we cannot get rid of these stories because they sit deep in our um, collective consciousness and also our collective unconscious. They're buried down in there. I mean, even the most sophisticated um, secular humanist has heard of Adam and Eve. And if we follow that thread even deeper into the level of the psyche and into the level level of uh, of the unconscious, the primordial mother, the primordial father. These are streams with with which the Bible is swimming in, and we we're not we haven't outgrown them, and we never will. Um, and I don't mind, by the way, the tension between um, uh, science and uh, and myth. I think they're fighting the wrong battles, but I, I enjoy the tension, the, the tensions between the two. So Genesis is a story that deals with this tweet and deals with it, I think, in two specific ways. And I'll, I'll get to them in a, sec- in a second. Um, 
one of the things that I think is being asked by many of us, um, and I sort of hinted at it before when uh, in someone's question, do we really need, do we need a new mythic narrative? Maybe the subtext is, the old one is old, it's done, it's not relevant, it's not powerful, it doesn't speak anymore. <clears throat> and if you apply that to the story of Genesis, let's just make some observations. So, in a broad sense, here's a creation story that deals with the following. Shame, nakedness, betrayal, um, blame, uh, sex, it deals with consciousness, the emergence of consciousness from a kind of um, <clears throat> uh, paradise-like state where there's no knowledge, so to speak, of good and evil, kind of union, womb-like paradise to the emergence of consciousness. And with that, all of the terrors of consciousness, like mortality, um, that from dust you came to dust you shall return, and um, morality. Um, we appear to be the only creatures <clears throat> that have uh, uh, a sense of, of morality, that even our instincts, which surprise us at times, we begin to, when they emerge, we begin to question them and think about them through the lens of, of morality and ethics. You have a story about autonomy, a human autonomy, and the ter terrible consequences of that autonomy. We have a story about gender. And how are the sexes related? And um, what is the tension between the sexes? And what about children? Not to mention you have a whole series of poles, a coincidence of opposites. <clears throat> you have light and dark and earth and sky and, and land and water um, and birds and fish and, and animals and humans and plants and and. And, and nature that, on the one hand, in the Bible is called good, on the other hand, as consciousness emerges onto the scene, it's terrifying. It doesn't play by our rules, and by the sweat of our brows, we have to work. It's a, more of an agrarian book. That's a, a context question. But life is such that it's painful. It deals with suffering. It deals with child rearing. It deals with the fact that we will have children that will tear each other apart and that that even to the extent of murderous rage against against our own brother now you tell me do we need genesis all right you say no we don't we're beyond that we're sophisticated all we need are you know, scientific facts and all right then you come up with a story that has a kind of compelling power that can last centuries um and cross uh, continents and ethnicities and languages that contains all of the following that I just mentioned. And then we have something to talk about. All right. So just on that level, it, I don't think it can be dismissed. I'm not asking you to believe it or to believe that it happened. Talk about an adventure in losing the plot. Talk about an adventure in missing the point. If we are talking about whether or not it literally happened, I mean, it, it's... To use Gary Snyder's uh, phrase, it's mind-bending how far off the plot we have actually gone. If someone says to me, well, Genesis is not literal. Okay, which part? <clears throat> People don't literally feel shame. They don't feel betrayed. They don't blame their significant other. 
they're not preoccupied with sex they're um there's not a change or a shift in consciousness as we grow up mortality doesn't really matter uh um morality doesn't matter ethics don't matter there's no such thing as autonomy and free will there's no tension between the sexes or genders uh, yeah right of course it's literal in that sense it's just not historical or factual and that's actually a definition of a myth if you go to um <clears throat> excuse me michael mead he says a myth is a series of lies that tells the truth <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's so good um or it's a story that's true but not factual um not historically factual it's deeper than that so um so what does genesis have to say about this tweet and there are two uh sentences that i think are worth um hovering around and bringing to mind here's the first one yahweh actually it's not yahweh i should <laughs> i know too much context uh, it says Elohim in the first chapter, which uh, literally you could translate as gods. It's the plural. So Elohim says to the um, birds and the fish, and maybe by default in a way, um, I think on the fifth day of creation, I have to look, but you can, you can verify it if you want, somewhere around there. He says, be fruitful and multiply. You've probably heard that phrase before, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, what's interesting, it's really an image of flourishing. Um, it's interesting that Elohim says that to the creatures of the earth, to the planet, to use a contemporary phrase. Be fruitful and multiply, flourish, fill the earth. And this is after sentence after sentence after sentence in creation saying it's good it's good it's good it's good so the writer here definitely has an agenda and what is the agenda that th what is natural in the world is good it's maybe not only good we have to start asking especially in chapter two well how come there's pain how come there's suffering and then you have this great and eternal tension that all myths deal with suffering and pain and evil and hardship and beauty and joy and goodness and life and fertility and vitality and so forth and so on um but in case you miss the point it says six times in a row it's good it's good it's good it's good it's good we could use a dose of that especially in our western post-industrial christianized um economic and political systems that tend to think about the earth as abstract resources. We have a department of natural resources for our own use. And I'm not against that. I, I'm, I'm not saying we need to go back to primitive um, hunter-gatherer union with the earth. And um, I think something like responsibility is in order, or to use an old-fashioned word, um, um, <laughs> it just actually slipped out of my mind. What, what, what are all these people saying? Not caretakers of the earth, but something like that. Um, stewards, that's what I'm looking for. Stewards. Yeah, even you, I can hear that in Gary Snyder. He says, whatever sense of ethical responsibility and concern we need to now bring to the planet, 
to a systems-wide place rather than just a human-centered place. <clears throat> so, um, so, back to the story. That's the first time the sentence is used. Then, human beings enter the scene. And really, it's Adam, which is a, um, kind of a generic word for humanity. It, it includes male and female. We, we usually think Adam, but Adam here means of the earth, of the dust, means red in Hebrew. Um, it's, a, it's a way of saying humanity. In case you um, lose the, the plot here, remember your dust. You are Adam. You are humanity. Yes, you are divine-like, and eventually, through a, a kind of fortunate um, falling down, you will know good and evil like God. You will have autonomy in a way like God, and and you're also dust. So you will you carry in your body this par paradox of of tremendous power that can be used for good or ill, and complete an, an utter dependence on the earth. That's the dust uh, component. Anyway, so Elohim says, all right, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So right in the opening chapter, we have a tension <clears throat> that is never resolved and is ever presently looking us in the face. What is the relationship between my flourishing, flourishing of my family and my community and my city and my country now? and the flourishing of the planet. I mean, this, I, I almost, I've, I felt like a little emotional for a second because it seems to me that anyone who would call themselves a believer in the Bible would be the greenest um, advocate for the flourishing of the planet out of everyone because it's the thing to which we we say we're committed to and it shapes our values and our ideas and our consciousness and so forth and so on it's right there in the beginning the fruitfulness of the earth is totally intertwined with human fruitfulness and their intention there are times when the flourishing of the human species um, causes the dis diminishment of the f of the flourishing of the planet. There are times. The flourishing of the earth, flourishing of human beings, it's a tension that we are invited to take as seriously as anything else we take in our life. And right now, we're reaching a place, the first time ever in the history of humanity, because there are 7 billion people on the planet, and because of the the post-industrial mechanisms that we had that the Bible could never have even dreamed of, we have to ask this question. Um, it has to be front and center in everything we do. From, yes, of course, the kind of cars we drive and gasoline and all like the common stuff down to the food that we eat and how it's grown. Not to mention our clothes and where they're made and what they're made of and, and the chemicals and the water and all, everything we must ask. And, and in case we... Uh, need a reminder human flourishing is good and the flourishing of the planet is good so there we have um, the, sort of the the linchpin of human responsibility and I'm trying to elevate it more than ever that this line stares in the face that Trump tweet and any political ideology right or left 
I mean, let's just be honest for a second. Um, and I've been prone to this almost wishing humanity and all of its mechanisms would go away and we just go back to gathering mushrooms. That is a naive pie in the sky impossibility. That's kind of a, that's a, that's regressive to say the least. But also the other extreme that don't worry, technology will fix everything. No, we must live with the tensions here and live with them responsibly and, and begin to recognize, um, many of our false beliefs that have put us in this place and begin to say, how can we rectify them? How can we begin to think with our intellect and every other human capacity differently? That's, that is sentence number one that I'm interested in. Here's the second sentence. <clears throat> A fun theological um, bone in the throat if you're a monotheist. The sentence is this. Let us make Adam, humankind, in our image, in our likeness. So there's a kind of plurality here. So even with that, even if you are a monotheist, what does that mean? Why is God um, being spoken of, Elohim here, in the plural? What are these divine energies that are at work? And why are they used in the plural? And if that's one thing, and, uh, and what does that have to do with humanity? Why is then humanity in the likeness of this plurality? Part of the answer to that is, is in who gets created, which is male and female. Adam, humanity, male and female, is part of the image or the likeness of this divinity. So that there's even a kind of plurality in what does it mean to be a human. And maybe we can extend that plurality into the ways in which that human being is interwoven and interconnected with everything else. Again, that's a, a plurality. So, but here's the part of the sentence that, that I'm interested in. It says, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Rule or subdue or master, depending on the translation. And you can see right away, it's time for some Western reckoning. We have used this verse consciously and probably also unconsciously as a justification for us to do to nature whatever we want. After all, the Bible says, subdue it. And, and that came right out of the experience of of the agrarian mentality or agrarian worldview. They knew that if they didn't cut down the trees um, and change the landscape and prop up the landscape with stones <clears throat> uh, to make terraces to capture water, they would not eat. If uh, they would be, they would remain in the hunter gatherer uh, kind of mode or level of, uh, of being in the world. So they knew this. They, they, they knew there was some tension. There's some subduing that involves, and it comes at a cost. I mean, even, even in the book of Joshua, there's deforestation. A tribe says, hey, there are too many trees. <clears throat> we can't plant our, our fields. And he says, cut them down. So right there, there's some tension, by the way, between the fruitfulness of the earth and our fruitfulness. There it is right there in this um, deforestation, so to speak, uh, passage. So I think we have some responsibility right now in the 21st century to admit some of our own false beliefs and how we ended up here about the role of human beings. Yes, we are called 
in a sense, to use our autonomy and power to master and subdue. And a lighter way of saying that is to cooperate with the natural world and to change the natural world so that we as a human culture can flourish. What we have to keep in mind at all times is that we are dust and fully dependent on the biosphere itself. We can disrupt it. Now we know we can disrupt it to such an extent that we can cause our own mass extinction through nuclear war or intense and cataclysmic climate change or <clears throat> whatever, fill in the blank. Um, any kind of apocalyptic scenario that we seem to be so drawn to on television, um, we're drawn to it because we can imagine such a scenario. So, yes, um, we have some responsibility. And I think that's part of the image here, because uh, if you look at the Hebrew, this, this is very kingly, king-like language used. In other words, used of royalty, we language, royal we, um, and also ruling, subduing, mastering. And you have to ask right now. All right. Um, what would it look like to be a benevolent king instead of an evil king? What would it look like to be life enhancing and life affirming <clears throat> toward the human cultures and the animal and plant cultures and soil cultures and water cultures? Um, what does that look like? Um, rather than self-serving and narcissistic and, um, and fear-oriented and, and the direction we're all prone to go, especially in times of anxiety. Uh, circle the wagons and worry about me, 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 me. Um, let the Bible itself challenge that. So what kind of <clears throat> sort of kingship or queenship um, can we imagine uh, moving forward that is um, life-affirming and life-enhancing? Which... Uh, reminds me of, a, of another quotation. Here's, here's a line from um, Thomas Berry. It's about the interdependence here and the kind of humility and great work and covenant is even the word that he uses. So here's uh, Thomas Berry. <clears throat> this is from the great work. Every animal form depends ultimately on plants. So let's translate that to the human realm. We're all uh, completely and utterly vegans in, in terms of we are plant powered even if we eat meat so every animal form depends ultimately on plant forms that alone can transform they alone can transform the energy of the sun and the minerals of the earth into the living substance needed for life nourishment of the entire animal world including the human community we know this but it's almost like we have to hear it maybe you have to hear it poetically for it to sink in <clears throat> the well-being of the soil, and this is becoming painfully obvious, and all kinds of really exciting things are happening by the world way in the world of farming. Everything from um, permaculture to no-till to even just simple organic uh, ways of farming. And we're finding out cooperating with the soil and worrying about the health of the soil is the thing that makes the land most fruitful and gains the highest yields rather than relying solely um, or primarily on our ability to manipulate seeds and soil and water sources uh, through our, whatever, our chemicals. So let me read that again. The, the well-being of the soil 
and the plants growing there must be a primary concern for humans. I think about the land where I live. I mean, my actual house, my property. The house was from 1850, and I, um, I'm, I'm a tenant for a while. Um, the bank is letting me live on this land for a while. And how am I going to treat it? And I mean the actual land. I mean, you have to start somewhere. Um, and, and you don't have to, like, move out to the country or something. I'm saying, but you, you have to think quite literally about what you put into your mouth and where you shop and what you buy and where it's grown, asking questions of soil and plant. That's what he seems to be getting at here. And then this sort of damning line, to disrupt this process is to break the covenant of the earth. And I think the covenant is a bit, I think he has, um, Tom Sperry's a Christian, I think he has Genesis in mind here. This covenant. All right. In a sense, Elohim says, I brought you up out of the dust and I am making a covenant with you. <clears throat> and I'm asking you to till and toil this wild place to live in the tensions of this wild place. I'm calling you to your best king or queen uh, archetypal energies to be benevolent and generous uh, having not only your own concern, but the concern of the plants and animals, the fruitfulness of the entire globe. That's how that's 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 the high view I have of human beings. This is all my imagining of what Elohim is saying, saying, and let's make a covenant. You're going to do this. And human beings, in a way, um, say, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Um, our flaws and and our um, our our shadow our sinister shadow and our golden, um, our golden flecks in the depths of our soul, both. Yep, that's our covenant. He says, to disrupt this process, the soil, is to break the covenant of the earth and to imperil life. And that's where we stand, I think, right now. Um, really already well into the 21st century. With now... It's kind of even a weird phrase, the 22nd century. Um, how are we going to live in this world moving forward? And what I'm saying is that in Genesis, there are some seeds. No, no sort of no pun intended here. There are seeds um, in the soil of this story that that challenge our value systems, our present value system challenges it and it, it's not a matter of agreeing with everything in there um, but it's a matter of engaging it to its depths and saying all right what are the ancient pathways of wisdom that we must carry forward even as we evolve and change even as new science and technology and ways of thinking and being and living on this planet begin to emerge what is it what is that what is the healthy stream that can can feed us um, and challenge us sort of at the same time. So these, I think, are um, questions that emerge out of the story and continue to emerge out of the story, even if so much of Genesis, I mean, I'm thinking about the Creation Museum right now, <clears throat> is an adventure in missing the point and in losing the plot. 
in, in the zeal, I mean, I have a lot of respect for fundamentalists because I once was one. I was a part of this community saying, no, we take the Bible so seriously that we're going to build a museum dedicated to creation. And I think the motivation of that saying, hey, we value a creator creation orientation. And we think it provides us meaning in the world. Well, me too. I agree with that. But an adventure in missing the point and in losing the plot is to overly literalize um, such a thing to the point of the absurd. And once we're there, then culturally, we, in a way, we stop paying attention to, to the archetypal, the symbolic, the metaphoric, and the deeper streams of this, of this narrative that I think still have much to offer us. So ah, I guess that's enough. Um, that's uh, I, part two. We've lost the plot. Send me your questions, comments, tweets, and uh, thanks for listening. I mean, I was surprised. I haven't put out a podcast in a while, and I was surprised how many people <coughs> um, just downloaded in just a few short days. So thank you, and pass it on if you would, please. And, um, and Australia, shout out to you. Um, some of you probably listen to this in the blazing heat. So, um, yeah, what a strange uh, global environment we find ourselves in. Um, I hope you heard something here today that rubbed you the wrong way in a positive way and maybe also captured your imagination and, and inspired you from these ancient stories. Take it easy. <laughs>